Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Guru Podcast, featuring insights from artists and professionals of color. On today's podcast, we'll have a conversation with engineer-turned-poet Bryant O'Hara. His poetry has been published in the Pandemic Atlanta 2020, Starline Magazine, and the iDrum periodically. Today, he's going to talk about his new book of speculative poetry entitled The Ghetto Birds. So stay tuned for another informative episode of the Urban Guru Podcast. Let's go back a little bit. So you said you were kind of always interested in writing. When did when did it first occur to you that you wanted to be a writer? Did you write things when you were um, younger? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, I recall doing some writing even in elementary school. I mean, I, I just I like doing it. I, I like trying to create stories. Obviously, as a kid, they weren't all that great. But I like <laughs> I like reading stories as well as mm -hmm. writing them. Mm -hmm. I mean, my interest in writing had waxed and, and waned over the years, depending on, you know, where I was, you know, physically and, you know, you know where my interest took me. Mm -hmm. um, when, by the time I got into high school, you know, I was taking, uh, you know, advanced placement English classes and creative writing classes. So mm -hmm. once I started doing that, I got really interested because I started to get more, a little bit more into the technical aspects of trying to, to write. So mm -hmm. once I knew there were different ways of writing, mm -hmm. different formats, that uh, that took my interest for a while as well. Mm -hmm. Now, um, were you also an avid reader when you were younger? Oh, yeah. Of course, it starts at home. So in, in our home, uh, my mom and dad had purchased two sets of encyclopedias, mm -hmm. not the fancy, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica. We were you know, my dad was Marine. He couldn't afford that. <laughs> but what he did, what we did have was like the uh, New World Book of Knowledge. Mm -hmm. And there was some other one, too. I can't remember its name. But that, the main one was like the New World Book of Knowledge. Mm -hmm. And we had like uh, some Time Life books. Uh, mm -hmm. And so what, what I would, I was always really curious about something. So I'd start trying to read something in my or I'd ask a question and my, both my parents would say, well, you got two sets of encyclopedias, go look it up. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Can you give me a hint? He's like, yeah, sure. We'll give you a hint for a little while. After that, you're on your own. So do you, you consider your parents, were they your first inspiration in terms of your writing and your creativity when you were younger? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think my, uh, you know, both my parents really definitely encouraged me. Um, mm -hmm. My dad was definitely into um building mechanical things he actually had uh he had a set of model airplanes <laughs> oh wow uh before they had you know the the remote control airplanes mm -hmm. they'd have those ones that were basically uh you could kind of guide them but they were basically on a long wire you know and, oh, and you basically you yes. just had you just they just spun around and around and you could you could kind mm -hmm. of manipulate them i mm -hmm. guess with the these these wires that would adjust the you know the ailerons and stuff like that mm -hmm. so you came by your interest in engineering or mechanical things naturally as, as a young person with your dad and his um his model planes and stuff is did that contribute to you considering being an engineer oh yeah yeah most definitely okay. um no i mean we i never really got a chance to use a lot of his tools because <laughs> he was <laughs> usually very strict on on the use of them mm -hmm. uh and I think that 
sort of kind of keeping me from the tools, you know, early in life just kind of made me more curious about wanting to use them. So, mm -hmm. you know, when I had the opportunities to take, you know, either industrial arts or shop class, mm -hmm. you know, I tried to take them when I could. It seems like your approach was very practical. Like you said, you noticed the different types of writing and the, and the technicality of the writing and stuff. So again, your mind kind of goes to the technical aspect of it. I'm curious, why did you, when did you settle on poetry as opposed to becoming a short story writer or a novelist or, have, or do you do all three of those things? Um, I, I'd never done novels. I had mm -hmm. tried my hand at short stories, but at the time I felt like I just wasn't sustaining the narrative enough mm -hmm. to 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 make it work mm -hmm. uh poetry came you know easier because mm -hmm. again because of the structure and uh and even when you started doing free verse it was easier to impose a structure mm -hmm. by the time i mean i did write some short stories i had to write some mm -hmm. as part of my uh graduation uh from college uh the second major i had i actually have to do the equivalent of like a thesis mm -hmm. uh and uh, sort of this, this project that i had to do this thesis um was basically a collection of short stories oh, wow. so okay. um what really kind of got me interested in doing poetry again uh was the the rise of the uh uh the poetry slams around the early 90s i think okay. it was really starting to kind of kick off mm -hmm. So I tried to go to a couple of things, especially when I left Massachusetts to come back to Atlanta. That was one of the first things I was trying to do was just find new places to read poems and kind of sharpen the saw, as it were, I guess. So you would look for places to read. So you were testing out your, your poetry. You were seeing the reaction of the audience. Yeah, I was trying to experiment with different styles. Mm -hmm. And once the style that I kind of hit on mm -hmm. Uh, before I graduated was, um, I guess what they call a cut-up style. I, I was reading a lot of uh, William S. Burroughs, and I really kind of liked the idea of, of one of the techniques he was kind of more famous for, which was taking pre-existing texts and physically chopping them up and then rearranging them, and then basically reading it back as if it were a unified thing. <laughs> which can produce some very wild uh -huh. um, non-narratives, I would call them. <laughs> but as I started playing with that idea, I started also listening to a few other authors. Um, by that time, another one was like uh, Russell Edson. Uh -huh. And his poetry was very absurd. I mean, he, he wrote things about like cows and hamburger devices uh. and they were just i mean I, I i think i picked one of his cassettes at random from i was like at a harvard bookstore mm -hmm. once and i was looking for some audio recording of of poetry and or any sort of literature and somebody handed me this tape and it was called a performance at hog hill i think it was and so I was listening to it, and my first thought was, what in the world is this guy doing? <laughs> and I was laughing my ass off because it was so freaking funny and, and just absurd. And so combining those two influences at the time, I started trying to see where, where I could kind of go in that vein. Needless to say, 
my first attempt at doing this did not go very well <laughs> when among the first poetry venues I go to is Club Kaumba down in the West End. <laughs> and um, it didn't, I mean, people were, were a little bit interested. It was, it was strange and all, but I think I really felt like a fish out of water uh, when I first got there mm-hmm. because it was 93 uh, when I moved back to Atlanta. So there's the, the main two things that are going on at that time were you know, Atlanta's like physically gearing up for the Olympics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're in like sort of like the heyday of the Afrocentric movement uh, at the time. And, and here I was, this engineering geek with a degree in technical writing coming in with some weird ass style of poetry reminiscent <laughs> of some beat author, <laughs> some dude from Connecticut. <laughs> Needless to say, it was like a spatial, just with a complete flyby. <laughs> <laughs> when when you get to um, Ghetto Birds, by now you've adopted your style. Yeah, well, it came about because of that interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, you know, trying to figure out what can I say here mm-hmm. that would mean anything to the audience mm-hmm. uh, that I was putting myself in front of, and eventually it kind of hit on me that okay i like i'm into science fiction particularly hard science fiction mm-hmm. you know with an engineering background but the topics that people are talking about we're talking about at the time and to an extent still are seem like completely different until i realized okay funk it, it just kind of hit me as i was listening i think i was probably listening to some earth wind and fire or something on the way home <laughs> and i realized oh okay, I can do this. <laughs> just, I just need to kind of channel that sort of vibe, mix the science fiction with the, the, the sort of the, the rhythm and the whimsy of, and kind of the, the built-in optimism of, mm-hmm. of funk in its heyday. Nature is a bad mother, half raising one bastard species after another dropping them into an ongoing explosion, saying, make your way, after sashaying down the eons to drop off a load of kids. So that's when I started really kind of kind of leaning into that idea. And that's when sort of people started kind of paying attention. Mm-hmm. And the ghetto bars kind of grew out of that. We're talking about your, your process. So when you're composing a piece, are you actively thinking of funk a lot of times it's it's definitely uh what i'm listening to and at times mm-hmm. i will kind of try to catch some aspect of it mm-hmm. um in written form yeah so yeah I, at times i'll try to figure out what the cadence is the mm-hmm. and translate that into a uh, poetic meter mm-hmm. and see you know can i get close to that what can i you know if i can't get close what can i do based on it because you know it was interesting. I know when we were talking um, about it, and I was telling you that I was I was reading through Ghetto Birds. I would do like one or two pieces a night, mm-hmm. and it finally dawned on me. It's like you really should read them out loud. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm working on the audiobook. <laughs> Every single one of these have been read out loud initially, and and it's different, and you feel it, and it gives you a different intensity than just reading it silently. And so from then on, I just I you know I just. I would just read them out loud. 
And so is that what you really want? Is, is that what you want the, the, the people to buy the book to do? Do you, you want them to read it out loud so they can feel that? You know what? I hadn't thought about that. I mean, usually when people ask me, I do say uh, these poems were initial. I mean, they were written and then they were spoken. And mm -hmm. um, I basically adjusted the poems to sound uh, the way I want them to sound when spoken. Mm -hmm. so that might actually be something to put in. It's like, <laughs> you know what, to best enjoy these things, read them aloud <laughs> yeah <laughs> read them to yourself read them in the uh -huh. cards just read them out loud and you know what mama nature always says you fix it or you buy it. i ain't got time for your bullshit after sashaying down the eons drop off a load of kids a lot of them do buy it or jerry rig an adaptation but humankind, oh no. This little knucklehead actually has the indignation to talk back to its mama like it's grown, to get up in her face and raise its voice at her, saying, I'll fix it and I'll break this world to do it if I have to. And then I'm getting off this rock, cause I got better places to be than under a couple of meters of deep blue sea, cause I ain't got time for your bullshit. And nature, bad mother that she is, looks humankind in its collective eyes and says, I dare you. Um, I saw your video mm -hmm. <laughs> on your site, your unboxing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the first poems that, that make up the Ghetto Birds were written in the 90s. Wow. Probably some of the oldest ones in there are mm -hmm. like uh, Mariah Pariah is probably mm -hmm. the oldest, followed by the Heavy Cranes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those were written yeah pretty early on. They they'd gone through some iterations, but I mean Mariah Pariah in particular definitely has a. I've changed some aspects of it, particularly like the choruses, a couple of times. So. Why did it take so long for you to get down to this point? My first active set of years uh, were between 93 and 97. And I mean, I had started, it was around that period that I first kind of came up with the concept of the ghetto birds. You know, I, I wrote several earlier poems that actually aren't in the book. At some point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take those out and dust them off and clean them up. Uh, and I started, you know, it's like, actively trying to just read them wherever I could read them uh, and open mics. I mean, I guess I didn't really feel sufficiently confident to start really trying to put a collection together. Uh, in 96, I got married. Now, your wedding was traditional. No, well, yes and no. It, it was relatively <laughs> traditional. I mean, I uh, mine was at a Unitarian Universalist church. Okay, okay. But but they had a, we had an African percussion choir in um, as part of that church, um, it was a uh, and it it was called Thurman Hamer Ellington uh, Unitarian Universalist. It was basically wow. one of the first, as far as I, and maybe one of the only uh, churches in the Unitarian Universalist denomination that was really trying to aim at being a little more on the Afrocentric side. Okay. Um, so 
but still with adhering to adhering to the principles which are pretty mm -hmm. broad um and yeah in, in our wedding i was in the choir i mean i was actually playing a, a bass drum called june june and so my wife came in first and so uh -huh. i handed the sticks to the <laughs> one of the other <laughs> players and then walked up to the aisle <laughs> and later on in 96 i had my first uh my first child my son and i think at that point i kind of it was kind of like that conversation i had with my mom am i going to go this way and pursue the arts and poetry or am i going to go this way and you know focus on you know actually getting my career as a technical writer moving um and i i made the choice i went i went the choice for the practical i did write i but i wrote a lot less often um and i really didn't start writing more in earnest until mid 2000s early uh early 2010s had a group of people that i could you know read and get you know bounce ideas off of and there were still you know open mic venues around at the time mm -hmm. as i made more time as i felt like i had more time that's when i started getting more and more involved and 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 believe me throughout that entire 20 something year period uh <laughs> my my wife alice was telling me when are you going to publish this damn book <laughs> you have you have everything you need just publish the damn thing and finally finally i, I actually listened to her which i should have done earlier and and i did and i was actually going to self-publish it initially because mm -hmm. again i couldn't i didn't know who was taking you know science fiction poetry with a funk influence mm -hmm. one of my fellow writers from one of those groups recommended i i try this particular uh, publisher frayed edge press mm -hmm. i said okay, okay sure she said she's gonna love it really and i was like all right but if i don't hear anything back in a, you know x number of days i'm pulling the trigger on this and self-publishing lo and behold before that time period was up i i got an acceptance so that's, nice. that's how it came about we built a badass boom box to hear a billion year bass drop at the end of a binary black hole swing you drop a needle on the record and the eons might just sing. In this moment, playing in the key of B, we, the matter, matter. We throw our hands to the stars and wave at waves. We built a badass boombox to hear a billion-year bass drop at the end of a binary black hole swing. You drop a needle on the record and the eons might just sing. Now, do you want to tell the audience what is a ghetto birds? Because I mention it to people all the time and say ghetto mm -hmm. birds. And you can see the question in their face. It's like, what's that? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, the first time I heard the, 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 the word was I was um, riding with my brother uh, down, I think it's International Boulevard. It used to be Stewart Avenue. Mm -hmm. I think he was playing a song from NWA called Ghetto Bird. And okay, you know, we were nodding our heads to it. And, and I was thinking, all right, so it's Ghetto Bird. And of course, I'm thinking of the the sound of the word and the mm -hmm. uh, and how I found that the the word itself fascinating. 
And so I, I just turned to my brother and asked him the same question. I, and they, everybody asked me, he's like, what the hell is a ghetto bird? And he said, it's a police helicopter. Because, of course, in South Central, what's the main bird you're going to see? <laughs> it's a man-made one. So now, once I had the, the, the word, the term in my head, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with it. And it took probably another six to nine months mm-hmm. before I figured out what I was going to do. I was visiting someone's apartment and they had a, an art collection and mm-hmm. I was looking at uh, some of the things they had and they had a picture of a stylized picture of a guy who's like, you know, in this, you know, you know, don't hurt me pose. And there's this helicopter type object shining, a, you know, a, a beam on that person. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, okay, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to run with the idea of, of the ghetto birds as sentient beings i was thinking along the lines of transformers at the time but then i just started you know playing more and more with the idea of them being sort of composite entities mm-hmm. you know they can kind of like incorporate people a little bit like the borg but for a beneficial purpose <laughs> we await the stomps that shake the dance halls of space time we brace for the booms that become the bips that thunder across the void and we clap our hands to the clave of the cosmos long gone. We built a badass boom box to hear a billion year bass drop at the end of a binary black hole swing. You drop a needle on the record and the eons might just sing. In this moment, playing in the key of C, we, the matter, do matter. We nod our heads and raise our ever-changing sticks We built a badass boombox to hear a billion-year bass drop at the end of a binary black hole swing. You drop a needle on the record and the eons might just sing. You drop a needle on the record and the universe might just sing. We hear a tiny needle drop on a great big record, and we hope that the deep time swing. If you were going to put together a a chronology, uh within this ghetto bird universe or there's a there's a few thousand years in between the the first story which i would consider to be uh the heavy cranes mm-hmm. and closer to uh one of the end pieces which would be uh hoop dance mm-hmm. because i mean the whole point behind the the ghetto birds is they want to help humanity become a spacefaring civilization. Mm-hmm. The stories, the poems, basically kind of are snapshots of where they are mm-hmm. in that process. So I, could, I mean, it's I could put plenty of things in it. So it's, <laughs> there's a lot of room. Yeah, um, and both before and after. And you, um, you mentioned earlier that you were. Re- recording some of these are you going to put out uh, are you going to do them like individual or are you going to put out a audiobook collection uh, audio uh, the whole collection yeah i'm actually putting i am putting together an audiobook mm-hmm. um i've done like the first round of recordings and um so they're all all of them are recorded in some way some way shape or form um mm-hmm. there's a few a few that are like that are older uh i want to I'm probably going to have to re-record uh, so that they actually match um, the the text in the book, because mm-hmm. some of them have have changed significantly enough that 
I would need to re-record them. One thing I'm I had been kind of on the fence about was whether to just do a straight straight reads versus incorporating background sound or music. Mm. Some of these are so cosmic, you know, mm -hmm. and, and scale and stuff. That would be really interesting. Um, I mean, because you like you have the one, um, was it We Drink Between the Stars? Yeah. It's yeah. Like, you know, um, and the ones like the the rings of Jupiter and, and the communication between the, the the satellites and stuff. It's like some of it's very oh, bargains. Hot. Bargains yeah. with Aurora and the Borealis. Yeah. It's like, wow. <laughs> That would be really interesting to see what you almost you almost like a, a sound design. Well, actually, the first attempts I did at recording some of these, and that was the other thing that kind of prompted me to do more work, uh, was one of my uh, adopted sons had turned me on to this uh, service that that was an early service at the time called SoundCloud, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and he was using it just to kind of upload notes, you know, for things. And I saw the potential for not only uploading my poetry just to kind of preserve it, mm -hmm. but also to kind of, you know, play with the form. Mm. Um, and for a while, there was a, a collection of groups within SoundCloud. They used to have groups that were devoted to this idea called digital audio poetry, mm. which was, it wasn't just, it wasn't merely, you know, record your poem and then upload it, right? It was like, take your poetry and, and actually, treated almost like you would do uh the production of music mm -hmm. where you were adding like effects mm -hmm. uh multiple background sound design mm -hmm. i mean yeah you could put music in there too or even or even song mm -hmm. but the idea is you were taking you were utilizing the tools available in that medium to kind of enhance the words mm -hmm. how far out do you think before we have something well, I'm hoping uh, sometime in the spring. Okay. You know, okay. That's, that's kind of what I'm aiming for. And I, the, given my habit of procrastinating, probably the thing that I'm going to do is just make an announcement, set a date, <laughs> <laughs> and basically and force myself to in. hit that date. <laughs> it's worked before. Why do you hope people get out of this book either when they hear it and or they buy it and read it or read it out loud what are you hoping that they get out of this what do you want to leave with them the the things that i present are on the whole presenting an a relatively optimistic future mm -hmm. albeit a very strange one <laughs> but the the idea is learning how to be okay with that yeah um like things like you know, Pigeon Police or even the Silent <laughs> Station where you have Marta as this, uh, think of it as essentially like a rogue AI mm -hmm. that's decided mm -hmm. it has its own rules of how things work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but things run. It just, humans aren't the only things in the loop. And I've always been kind of guided by, uh, and even when the type of science fiction that I, that I enjoy has at the end of the day, an optimistic tone. One of my favorite stories is from Ray Bradbury. It's called the, uh, the Toynbee Convector. Mm -hmm. And Guy does a press conference, says he's gone 100 years into the future and everything works. And Brand shows the world evidence that, yeah, we, we clean the air, save the whales, fix the climate, you name it, we did it, we did it right. And 100 years later, sure enough, 
it, it all happened. People were like, we did it. And so on the hundredth anniversary, cause this guy's still alive given life extension. Um, he authorized one person to interview him on the day he was supposed to basically meet his younger self mm -hmm. uh, via the time machine. Once they count down the time that his younger self is supposed to meet, the time hits zero. He turns to the reporter and says, I lied. Made the whole thing up. And the guy's like, why? And he says, because in his time, the world was full of despair. Uh -huh. And he felt that if a world that had had no hope for the future would not build one. Uh -huh. So he tried to provide some hope, give him, give him something to aim for. Uh -huh. That's the spirit in which I, that I wrote these pieces and try to write others. If you believe the world is going to hell in a handbasket, then in some way, shape or form, you are helping to build the basket. Yeah. <laughs> so, but if you believe things are going to get better or will be better, Mm -hmm. then you're going to, in some way, shape, or form, move that needle along. It's a really cool message to say, because I think sometimes, particularly with science fiction, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. become so dystopian and, you know, um, or alien invasion or, or whatever. Um, there's, I think there's sometimes there's very few that's really optimistic about a future. Well, dystopia is easy. Mm -hmm. um, just take a look at the world around you and go, yeah, if this, if this goes on, that's all you have to ask. You know, what if this goes on? Um, you can get a lot of mileage out of that. I guess the real problem is that when you want to write something that is optimistic, you, you got to kind of tread lightly because there's always the danger of becoming utopian, mm -hmm. which can be just as disingenuous as dystopian so at least nowadays i think it's a little bit harder to write stuff that is more optimistic it can be done mm -hmm. I, i'm sure it is being done it's just not as popular as doom <laughs> with three o's <laughs> <laughs> having things in on a better note mm -hmm. than they start um it's it's a it's a bit of a challenge you know I mean, all stories have to, if they're going to be any good, they have to have conflict in them. So mm -hmm. dystopian stuff just piles that conflict on. I, mean, it's like, <laughs> I think the one example I found of one that kind of does aim for the uh, more positive one was uh, Arrival. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> I, I mean, one, yes. it's, it's the it's a great example of what I would consider hard science fiction. Yes, it is. It yes. is the linguist mm -hmm. is the hero. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and just the, the things that wind up happening. Uh, and she's trying to achieve this goal, despite conflict building up around her, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and she succeeds. And that, I mean, to me, that was a, that's an example of some what I consider relatively pretty optimistic. You mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. everybody winds up coming out better for it. Some of the newer stuff I've been writing has been mm -hmm. kind of incorporating more of those. Uh, I guess what I call them more than streets. Mm -hmm. The uh, things like, um, good lord, I'm, now I'm blanking on the title. It's the one with, <laughs> where it's the one with Peachtree Street. Okay, as a um, as sort of like a sentient entity. Mm -hmm. And it just you kind of follow a you follow a ghetto bird, mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, wandering the street and noticing how its perception of what's going on is different from what Peachtree Street's perception of it is going on versus the people who are actually on it, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. their perceptions of it. So, yeah, um, I, I've been kind of fascinated. I want to kind of draw upon more of that to kind of pull you know some of these influences from you know my experience you know living in atlanta both it's it's interesting aspects and it's it's troublesome aspects mm-hmm. in the pieces that you have you you, you see those different levels of awareness mm-hmm. and coexistence and I think that's the thing about it is coexistence is not malevolent from one or the other. It's coexistence. It's like you said, it's evolving. Um, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I forget which one it was, but the one where the riders are on the train. Uh, Cornelius <laughs> of the Rock. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh. The soul train. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was really, that was really deep. So um, tell me, how do we keep up with you? How do we find you? Well, uh, probably the the most up-to-date way to find me nowadays is um, I'm on uh, on Facebook. Okay. uh, Both under my normal name, Brian O'Hara, but I do have a page, uh, Brian O'Hara underscore poet. And also uh, I'm on Instagram under uh, that same um that same username brian o'hara underscore poet and um let's see i'm on twitter i do have uh my own website which i'm bad about updating but uh, <laughs> I, it will be updated <laughs> let's see and uh, the name of that website is um intimate and intricate.com one of the things i always ask everybody um, who comes on here because what I really like for these podcasts to do is to help other writers <laughs> who right. are out there just because uh, first time out is taking on a really different meaning because you can be any age coming from any discipline whatever it's just particularly with the upheaval two years ago a lot of people have, have really considered doing other things than what they've been doing and so my thing that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast is what advice would you give to new artists or career changers or people yeah. who are finally dusting off that idea that they've had an attic or the basement. What would you be your advice? In terms like for folks that are kind of dusting off stuff, mm-hmm. probably one thing I would recommend is be kind to yourself. <laughs> it's very easy to kind of get into a mode where you're thinking like, why didn't I do this earlier? Mm. You know, uh, why didn't I start earlier? Why didn't I, you know, do this or that or you know, whatever, what have you? The key is, as long as you're patient with yourself, but you know, intending to move forward, it's it's that is your best bet for being able to do this, mm-hmm. achieve these sorts of goals, and not drive yourself nuts mm-hmm. or guilt trip yourself into, mm-hmm. uh, you know, trying to get something done. Uh, yeah, I would recommend people be be patient with yourself, mm-hmm. but do the work. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> one other thing for new folks, I would say, good Lord, there are so many options. Mm-hmm. Um, don't be afraid to put it out. 
in any way, shape or form, uh, especially if you're going to self-publish, mm-hmm. don't be afraid to put it out. If it doesn't look right, fix it, do it again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is a, we live in a publishing environment where the idea of, in the, the technical jargon of fail fast, fail often, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, can just as easily apply to self-publishing. Mm-hmm. You know, if you got a set of stories and they, they didn't turn out well, you have many, many, many opportunities to rewrite them, turn them into different things and, and keep doing it. If that's the story you got in you, keep doing it until mm-hmm. it comes out in a way that you're satisfied with and somebody else will be satisfied with. Mm-hmm. All right, that's my, that's my spiel. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, because like you said, there, there's, there's so many opportunities. There's so many avenues um, even once you put out something that you might have written, I was just talking with another artist, um, author earlier, and it's like, he's also a musician and he he draws. So it's like, mm-hmm. well, and he's like, well, I put, books come out and I wish I had more things. And I said, well, you still have avenues to attach any kind of image you want to that material because you have all these other outlets where you could promote your book right (laughs) right you could use that image and that music and that mention you know like you're doing if you ever decide to do an audio book well you could put your original songs that you've composed for the book on that audio book so there's all kind of avenues and stuff we we are in a very unique time and space that kind of i think kind of started with the music where you could literally produce music in your in your house and sell it out, out you know on the street and then it I kind of come to film and video where you walk around with a production studio called a phone mm-hmm. and now with the publishing space too um where being self or indie published or even a small has become more acceptable so as a creative person it ain't a bad time to live in <laughs> no no it's not it is it is most definitely not but thank you, Brian. I really appreciate it. Like I said, I love this. And like I said, I, I'm not kidding you. I always suggest to people because I know the title's going to get in and of itself. It's like, what the hell is a ghetto bird? It's like, get it in me. <laughs> yep. Um, but I, I really appreciate it. I really liked it. And that's why I really wanted to, to do the interview with you. So thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Urban Guru Podcast. And of course, you can always find us on iTunes. Just search for Urban Guru and you'll find our podcast listed. You can also listen to this podcast on SoundCloud. Just search for Urban Guru Podcast and you'll be able to find it there too. Thank you again for listening. And remember, no matter whatever your creative endeavor is, always push forward because every step that you take along that path will lead you to your ultimate destination. So I'll see you next time.